turn in your Bibles to chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. We will begin looking at a new section. It's actually, uh, it begins in verse 20 and goes through verse 14 of chapter 13. So, uh, we're going to be here a while. No. <laughs> Let's have a word of prayer. We'll read the word and then we'll try to get everybody up to speed. Chapter 12, verse 20 and 21. For I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish. That perhaps there is strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes. Slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I'm afraid that when I come again, my Lord may humiliate me before you. And I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented from impurity, immorality, sensuality, such which they have practiced. Father, help us to hear what the Apostle says here. Father, um, strange day and age, and yet, Father, as I see this, this trouble in the Corinthian church, I look and see it in the church in Castle Rock. Help us, Father. Father, not that we know how to do it, because, Father, what we're going to deal with is necessary for this congregation. So, Lord, I pray that even now, you're working in the souls of us so that we may understand, we may be encouraged, we can be strengthened, and we may be useful to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In Christ's name, amen. What I do, people will say that he is an expository preacher. And they will say because he starts at verse 1, Chapter 1, it goes through, that's expository preaching. That's not true. You can teach topically and be an expository preacher. Okay, When you hear the word expository, what you're going to be understanding is, make the sense of it. Explain it to me. Okay, now, I have seen some people who teach topically, and it's obvious they didn't read. <laughs> But, you know, they, they claim that they, they've got it figured out because I can biblically show you that you should go out and hang yourself. But uh, that's not expository preaching. But what I do, if you wanted to know the actual term for it, is textual thematic exposition. Okay? What that means is I take the text. That's the textual. Okay. I take the text where it's located. I take the text, whether it's New Testament, Old Testament. I take the text in light of the 66 books of the Bible. That's the text. Okay. Thematic is the theme. What is the theme that is being discussed? Okay. Exposition is explaining it. So I will be in the process of explaining the context. Explaining the theme, explaining the meaning of it. Okay, that's what I do. 
All right. So, you, you know, so now now you can kind of understand it. I'm moving now into a new section. OK, the section was set up in verse 19, but beginning at verse 20 through the end of the letter, it has but one theme, only one. And that's your outline title. OK, the process of sanctification. A few years ago, I taught the doctrine of sanctification on Sunday nights. It took me some time to teach it. It was not recorded. You cannot go hear it. Sorry. I'm not going to get back into the details of it because it was several years of teaching on that doctrine. And one of the things that I have learned is the church does not understand sanctification. We have bought into a lie, a deception. Here's what it says. You are cruising along in your sinful lives. And at this point right here, poof, you were justified. That's when you walked the aisle. All right. Then after that, you cruise along in your life. And that is sanctification. And then when your race is over, you step into heaven and it's glorification. Okay. That really sounds good except for one problem. It's not biblical. All right. I say the Bible says justification, sanctification, glorification equals salvation. Brothers and sisters, if you are really saved today, you are as holy right now as you're ever going to be. Now, you may not act like it, but it still doesn't mean it ain't true. All right. That's when you start seeing uh, what I call the, the tormented souls. What the Apostle Paul starts here is to show this pattern, this process of sanctification. OK, the process that you have to do. You don't know what it means. You have no idea when you got saved, whatever day year that was. Was your faith as strong as it is today? Let's hope not. Because <laughs> if it is, you may want to go back to step one. Okay? But do you see what I'm trying to get at? Because you will go through and take in information from God. From His, well, I hope you will take in information from His Word. And as you do, you will get pop quizzes. Okay? And you will ask your, be asked one simple question. Do you trust me? And we all smile when we hit the winning lotto tickets or I get the new car or my job gives me a promotion or I get this and see, yes, I trust you. Well, that's not when you trust him. When you trust him is when you got your face face down in the sewer. And then you say, do you trust him? When Job was sitting in the ashes, picking his sores after his family had been taken from him, except for a nagging wife. Though you slay me, I will bless the Lord. Okay. So what I want us to think about and what we're going to go through. uh, I was putting this together over, well, I don't know, a long time. I have a hard time with outlines. Okay, I, I, I just, uh, 
I inherited that from our last pastor and uh, uh, cursing to this day. No, <laughs> this text beginning at verse 20 through the end of the book has one theme, the process of sanctification. OK, one one thing. But what you will find in it is that it's multiple steps. OK, actually, there's about eight. All right. One is repentance. One is discipline. One is authority. One is authenticity. One is obedience. One is perfection. One is affection. And one is benediction. Okay? That all fits under the process of sanctification. And what we're starting to step into, we'll get into more detail next week, is repentance. Repentance. For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find that you not to be what I wish. You know, I, uh, as a pastor who's been in Castle Rock for a, a, a long time, uh, and have seen a, a lot of things, I mean a lot of things. You gotta remember, I shot my first deer with a bow. In founders. Okay. And I wasn't shooting between houses. Okay. I I knew the family that owned that property. The first antelope I ever shot was in the meadows. All right. So when I moved to Castle Rock, there was a traffic light at the interstate. Okay. Then they got a, a deal. Buy one, get one free. And they put them up everywhere. But what I have watched in our community is the pastorate is, is at a crossroads. Okay, and it's, it's not the Yogi Berra, when you come to the fork, take it. it. It is kind of astonishing. And one of the things that I hear, and I just heard it this Thursday at the prayer, is that you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Okay. What if the baby's drowning? Just leave it? All right? I mean, because I hate to break the news to you, it's drowning. You know what's a tragedy is, the pastors don't even know it. Many pastors in this town have no idea. Listen, I have watched things that I would have never dreamed. Okay? And... It is the church growing faster and faster. Amazing. Um, And they will tell you it's miraculous. And I can honestly say, as I look around, the church is amazing in its growth. Stunning. But its growth is in worldliness. And if you think about it, what is the easiest way to grow? Because when I speak of the word sanctification, I'm, it's the word holiness. Now, what do you think is easier? To grow in holiness or worldliness? As the church grows, leaps and bounds in worldliness, so does the pastor's job description. I have looked at some stuff that is on the Internet. If it wasn't so serious, it's comical. 
But I'm looking at people who have the eternal destinies of souls entrusted to them. And you read the job description and you might as well be applying for IBM. Most pastors today in Castle Rock are viewed as CEOs. They're chairman of the board. Some, uh, I, I know a guy that was hired here in town in a conservative church. Uh, the, the, their pastor retired and they hired a new pastor. All right. Do you know what the qualification that got him the job was? He was a great fundraiser. Okay. I see pastors who um, they think they're supposed to be psychologists. I see pastors who think they are entertainers. I've even seen pastors that are alive and well in this community right now who are the master of ceremony. Whatever the description, whatever the job descriptions, none of these perspectives can even get close to lining up with the biblical model. Some of you don't understand, uh, haven't known me long enough, some of you have. Do you realize that this is the only church that I've ever been a part of? My entire life. I've never been in another church. I mean, it doesn't mean I haven't attended other churches. But to be in a church, this is the only one I've ever been in. Almost 30 some years. Okay? And I remember, we were just talking about it. I remember when our pastor left. The elders came to me and said, Terry, what are you studying? Because at that time I was an electrician. And I said, First Peter. And they said, can you do me a favor? Can you do us a favor? And I said, what's that? He said, can you teach that to us until we get a pastor? And that was 21 years ago, over 21 years ago. <laughs> the guys are slow. But anyway, <laughs> gee, crickets. Okay. But do you understand something? As odd as that sounds, do you know that that's the biblical model? To hire a pastor from out of town? It's not biblical. The pastor came from within the teaching of the local church. You see that? And yet, when I make a statement like that, everybody looks at me like I felt, well, you're crazy. Why? Because that's not how we do it. But what have we done? We've opened up our pulpits to strangers. Okay, and you wonder why churches have turmoil. The question that I always come through with is, what is God's design for spiritual leadership? What does God say? What is the function of a pastor elder? According to the word of God, I don't want your opinion. Love you. But I, you know what? I listen to you guys. I can't do what you guys expect of me. All right? But what is it that God expects? The main concern of a true pastor is the spiritual maturity of the believers under his care. 
That should be the overriding focus and passion of his soul. Listen, I want you to understand something. I don't want any of you to have head knowledge. I don't want any of you to have a whole bunch of information that makes you wonderful at Bible trivia. That is useless. My computer has information and it ain't saved. I know it's not. The pastor's main concern should be the spiritual maturity and it should be the part of the heart. What is the heart of the people? And people say, well, you can't know the heart. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. Out of the mouth. Speaks the heart. Guess what? I know what your heart is. Why? You just slopped it out there. Chapter 4 of Ephesians, beginning at verse 11. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastor teachers. Why? Why did God do that? For the equipping of the saints... For the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Hmm. Why? Until we all attain the unity of the faith. Okay. How in the world do we get the unity of the faith? Thought you would never ask. And of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. To the measure of statute which belongs to the fullness of Christ. See, that's sanctification. That's a person who says, I know what this says and you shall never move me. Okay, there are a lot of people, maybe even in this room, that have Bible facts. But they have no confidence in it. They have no passion for it. They know what it says. Okay, they would be good at Bible trivia. But if the gates of hell show up, they're going to run over the hill screaming like a little girl. Okay? That is the heart. Paul is very clear about this. If we take this into the largest sense, the most important thing for a pastor's role is to build the church. Now listen, I know a lot. I could go ask a hundred people right now, how do you know that's a strong and powerful church? And I'll get a hundred different answers. Okay? And I doubt if any of them are going to be right. How do I take the church and make it strong and powerful? What does it look like when it's strong and powerful? Why? You want to mature the saints. It isn't numbers. Okay? Numbers don't work. Let's be realistic about it. If you're saying that it has to be numbers, what do you do with 11 half-hearted disciples in the upper room? That doesn't seem like a powerful church to me. Okay? And yet it was the foundation. What do you do with the Apostle Paul? Do you see what I'm trying to get at? These are things that you, you have to know. It ain't me. I understand it. I've read it. I see it. I've walked it. Okay? This is stuff that you have to understand. 
Why were you saved? Go ask an average Christian that question. Why did God save you? Well, it's easy. So I can go to heaven. Nope. That ain't why he saved you. Write it down. Romans 8.29. Romans 8.29. That's why you were saved. To be conformed into the image of Christ. That's why you were saved. How do you conform to the image of Christ? Well, you've got to know what holiness is. And it can't be your definition. Because you're going to be conformed into the image of Christ. You need His definitions. The emphasis of the, is of the Word. The emphasis is on the Bible. That is how you attain spiritual maturity. Listen now. It, I know people say, well, you know, I sit down and memorized Romans. Well, good for you. Well, I'm, I memorized the book of joy. Philippians. You know what? That ain't the book of joy. You might want to read it again. Okay. But, but I, I, I try to get people to ask, do you really know? Do you really, really, really know? Because you know what? I have never, I have to agree with a, a dear friend who's in glory now, Dr. Zodiades. And his statement to me is, never has the church been as haughty as she is right now. Okay? Now, how in the world does that work? How can you be puffed up and be a Christian? And yet we all want to open our mouths and let me tell you how smart I am. Really? You know what happens before the fall, right? Okay? I, it's, John Calvin used to call it, he says, We preach nothing but worm theology, for we are nothing but worms. And I was like, wow, John, bad breakfast, what? Okay? Because we do. We don't mind being the center of attention. Listen, I understand this life has issues. You know, I, I can't, uh, we have a couple of single young ladies in the congregation. It's not that I'm picking on them, but I had a daughter and she was convinced that if she had a husband, everything would be copacetic. And you know what? <laughs> she give blondes bad name. But anyway, uh, she, I, I kept explaining to her, she says, you have Christ. Well, but daddy, you have Christ. You have lacking nothing for life and godliness. Well, but if I know, there ain't no but if. Walk with Christ and watch what happens. Guess what? She went out and wandered around in the wilderness. And you get to the place, oh, I'm not going to tell dad nothing. Why? Because he, he, I, this is stupid. And I was like, yeah, Terry, it's stupid. Okay, guess what? She brought it back together. She walked with Christ and then came her husband. But she had to walk with Christ. And, and, and that ain't that hard, but what do we do? Well, I'll get on Facebook. There's a great plan. <laughs> Outstanding. You know, think that through. All right. 
That's what we do. I understand life's issues. You know what? I didn't wake up. Well, I just woke up this morning. I was born yesterday. Shazam! No. I've got a few miles. I've got some road rash too. I understand that there are our personal lives. I understand that we deal with illness. I understand that we have economic problems. I understand we have marital problems. I understand that we have family struggles. I understand that there are political garbage everywhere. I understand that there are social issues everywhere. I understand that that is tending to be the main concern of the church. Okay, now I thought, I, I have a statement I want you guys to hear. Alright? And it's only taken me about 200 years to get it, but anyway, that's minor detail. The church's role is not to make its members more comfortable in the world. Okay? I am not here to psychoanalyze you. I am not here to tell you how to handle your bank books. I am not here to tell you where to invest your 401k. I don't care about any of those things. You know what? You wake up tomorrow and you need your tonsils removed. Go see a doctor. Okay? You have a heart attack? Call 911. Listen, we are strangers and aliens. Passing through. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 11. Strangers and aliens. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 and 17. We are strangers and aliens. 1 Chronicles 29.15. We are strangers. We are outsiders. Hebrews 11.13. We are not of this place. The church. Listen. The church's responsibility. The church's only Responsibility is to prepare its members for our true home in heaven. That's it. I remember, I remember a guy one time who was an, an elder, and he came up to me and he said, Well, I hope Jesus doesn't come back too soon because I haven't been to the Caribbean. I'd like to go to the Caribbean first. Heaven or the Caribbean? Hmm. Brilliant. Thought that through, I can tell. But you know what? I guarantee you that's the norm in the evangelical church today. What if you lost it all? We were praying last week. We were thinking about Pastor Philip. And he's talking about how hot and humid it was. That people aren't out of their houses. And he says, and even if it wasn't hot and humid, he says, there's a lot of shootings going on. And he says uh, he doesn't know whether it's the Kashmir's or the Taliban, but whoever's doing it is, is just running around shooting at people. And he says, so people are afraid of strangers. And he says, but we will continue to go out. Now, that's a man who says, you know what? I'm just passing through. I'm just passing through. You know, think about it. Paul wrote the church in Rome and he says, when the fullness of the Gentiles is reached, then Christ comes back. Okay, you know what that means? There's one last Gentile out there somewhere. Let's find it. And get this thing over with. I mean, how would you like to do that? Share the gospel. The guy says, I need to repent. He prays for salvation. And poof, you're in the clouds. 
And you're like, whoa! He looks at you and says, is it like this for everybody you do that to? But, but see, we get so sidetracked with the issues here and we think that the church is supposed to help me with my issues of this world. You know what? That's not what we're here for. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 73, verse 25. This is an amazing psalm. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides, you I desire nothing on earth. When we talk about worship... The word that is encompassed in worship is worthiness. What is worthy to be worshipped? Now, and I got news for you. Just about anything. Watch us. We will worship just about anything. Let me give you a bunch of verses. You go look it up about heaven. Matthew chapter 6, verse 20. Matthew chapter 19, verse 21. Luke chapter 6. 22 and 23. Luke chapter 12, verse 21. Luke chapter 33, verse 2. 2 Corinthians 4, 18. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 4 and verse 8. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Colossians chapter 1, verse 5. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. All of them are the issue of we're headed for heaven. Listen, we saw in the last few weeks the concerns of a true pastor. Paul's passion was the spiritual well-being of the believers. His hopes, his fears, his desires, his expectations, all of it was focused on the believers. Why? He wanted them sanctified. He washed them with the word that he may present them holy and unblemished as a chaste virgin. If you look back at our text in Second Corinthians 12... You see there, and we concluded this last week, that all for your upbuilding, beloved. All for your upbuilding. I want you stronger. And in between these verses in chapter 20 and verse 14 of chapter 13, that's what he's dealing with. Okay, step one, he gives us in verses 20 and 21. And this is the first step of sanctification. First step of sanctification. Okay? It's a word that we don't like to hear. We are offended by it. Okay? And it's amazing because I've done some reading outside. I understand why now. It's the word repentance. And yet, I very quickly just through the Gospels found out that repentance is, is, is kind of like essential. No one can come to Jesus Christ apart from a complete change of heart and mind. That is repentance. I remember a pastor one time had a very wealthy friend. Very, very wealthy. I'm talking billionaire wealthy. Okay, He was single. Private jets, limos, private helicopters, the whole nine yards. And they played golf together. And one time they were praying, and he says, are you still praying for my salvation? And he says, yeah. And he says, well, I've got to tell you something. I, I don't want to be saved. 
And he looked at him. He says, uh, why not? He says, because if I get saved, I have to give up all of this. I have to give up the women, the travel, the money. The, I have to give it all up. And he looked at him. He says, no, you don't. And he says, what? He says, no, you don't. He says, well, what is salvation? He says, when you get saved, it's like somebody comes in and changes the price tags. What you used to put a lot of value on isn't really that valuable. It's an interesting thought if you think about it. That's repentance. All of a sudden, the things that you thought, oh, I've got to have that. Well, not really. Repentance was at the heart of the gospel message. Listen, repentance started way before the New Testament. But one of the greatest preachers of repentance was a guy named John the Baptist. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 2 and 8. What must you do? Behold, the kingdom is at hand. What? Repent and be baptized. Hmm. It was the message of our Lord. Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 4, verse 17. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 15. Luke, chapter 13. Verse 3. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Did you, did you see that? I just want to make sure you've seen that. Verse 5. I tell you, no. Likewise, you will perish. Verse 3, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Listen, if Jesus keeps repeating it, I'm thinking that he's starting to get a point across. What do you think? The message of the apostles was fascinating. Acts chapter... uh, 2, verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you will be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the free gift of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 19. Therefore repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that the times of refreshing may come in the presence of our Lord. The Apostle Paul, Acts chapter 12, verse 30, wait, 1330, whatever. I, I want us just to think about because I've watched people today, they use repentance and faith together. Okay? And I've heard the arguments. Okay? Well, if you repent, that's works. Okay? 
And so you, you sit there and you kind of scratch your eye. And I, I'm sitting there going, okay, here's the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians, 2 Timothy, and Acts, and Acts 20, okay? And, and yet, people just sort of kind of fumble-bum around about it. Do you know what the Great Commission is? Okay, we always quote the Great Commission, right? Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? That's the Great Commission, making disciples. Okay, that's, that's, that's what you do. Do you know what the Great Commission of the church is? Did you know there was an order given by the Lord for the church? The Great Commission for the church? Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, gives it to us. Verse 47, 46 and 47, he said to them, Thus it is written, that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. That's the great commission of the church. What? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But today, repentance is misunderstood. Or it's not even spoken of. Okay? And you know what I found is? Uh, and I, I just rolled this out this week just to see. <laughs> I just sometimes It's fun to pull a pin on a grenade and roll it into a room and see who runs. But anyway. Repentance has come controversial in the contemporary church. Who'd have thought? But you know what? They say that people who want to speak of repentance are curmudgeons. I had to go look that up. They are pharisaical. They are legalistic. If you speak of repentance. We're not worried about repentance. We're worried about salvation. You've got to be caring. And what I find is some, many, have removed repentance from any connection with sin. It has nothing to do with sin. You know how they define repentance today? And I've heard it. Okay, now. I, I, they define repentance as a change of mind about who Christ is. That's repentance. Okay. It is the same as faith. It has nothing to do with turning from sin. Listen, faith doesn't say turn from sin. Faith says, I believe. Okay. Repentance says, and I believe that he's really Christ. Here's a quote from a book called The Gospel Message by a guy named uh, Constable, Thomas Constable. Very often quoted, dude. Okay. Here's what he says. Quote. Repentance means to change one's mind. It does not mean to change one's life. Unquote. Okay, And you know what? Scripture doesn't know anything of a repentance that does not involve turning from sin. One of my favorite buddies I've been hanging out with here lately. We're, we're just now getting to, kind of getting together. Isaiah. 
chapter 55, verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Our Lord spoke of repentance in Luke's Gospel 24-47. I read that to you. Paul before Agrippa in Acts 26-20 spoke of repentance. And it's, it's sad because when I say and I, I read and I listen to these people that repentance is nothing to do but more than a change of mind. Really? Well, let me read you this verse about changing your mind. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became darkened and they gnawed their tongues because of pain and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and they did not repent of their deeds. Hmm. That's Revelation 16, 11. Revelations 9, 20, 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood which can neither see, hear, nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor their immorality, nor their thefts. Unrepentance, biblically, is a reference to unbelievers. Listen, repentance is necessary for the first step of sanctification. That process. You learning it. Now, when God says you're saved, you are sanctified. Listen, you're not going to believe this, but while you're sitting down, you digest this. Did you know that sin inhibits spiritual growth? Okay, well, then what is sin? Anything that displeases God. All right. Anything that displeases God cannot help in the process of sanctification. You don't have to be a theologian to understand that. So, like faith, repentance is not a one-time act of conversion. Repentance shows up all the time. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Okay? When it says confess, it doesn't mean, I'll go to the little booth and say, I'm I'm sorry again. No. It says... I agree that what I just did was sin. I don't have to confess to anybody. He knows where I'm at. So, therefore, dealing with sinning Christians should be an extremely important part of a pastor's role. I preach every Sunday. Every time I teach, it is to deal with your sins. Do you understand that? 
I'm trying to get you to make a change. I want it to go from your knothead to your heart. And I pray every morning before I start that the Holy Spirit will crush the arrogance of our pride. And if you say you don't have any, then I'll pray harder for you. We must be calling believers to repentance, to a change. Move away from that. It doesn't offer you anything. I had this conversation when I was back for my cousin's memorial. The world cannot satisfy. There's nothing out there that will ever satisfy you. I don't care what it is. You go go eat the best steak in the world and tomorrow you'll be hungry. I don't care what it is. You can have a nice house. It'll turn into an old house. You can have a new car. It'll turn into an old car. I watch people go through relationships that way. Well, that one just, it just wasn't that good. You know, I'll go over here. I'll go do this one. You know what? No, it won't. It won't. It ain't going to satisfy. And yet we keep chasing the things of this world. In this text, where we're moving now, Paul is going to motivate the Corinthians to repent. Alright? They've had a stressed relationship. But you know what is amazing? He called them beloved in verse 19. And this is his fourth letter. He hasn't given up on them. How many times has someone hurt you and you're like, I'm going to wipe the dust off my shoes and boogie on down the road. Paul kept sticking his face back in it. I want to present you as a chaste, pure virgin. This is the same group that got drunk at the Lord's table. This is the same group that would eat all of the food before the poor people showed up. This is the same group that was bragging about how great grace was because a man had his father's wife. This is a great group where the people could act in their homosexual agenda and it would be fine because God loves you. And yet he's still calling them to repentance. Okay, next week we will begin. There are two points dealing with repentance. Dealing with step one in the process of sanctification. One, unrepentant sin and the problems it causes. Two, unrepentant sin and the pain it causes. And we'll dig into these in the next couple of weeks. And then we'll move on. Listen, there is no greater issue. If you're saved today, and I'm talking about saved, there is no greater issue, there should be no greater passion in your soul right now than your own personal sanctification. Because that is your spiritual maturity and or lack. And most of the time when I see people who are not growing spiritually, I know exactly what it is. Unrepentant sin. Then that just makes you want to do a happy dance, huh? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul. Thank you that by your grace, you give each of us repentance. Father, I pray. Pray for each of us. Father, as you move us, 
We listen. We do it with joy. Help us, Lord, as we prepare um, to break bread together, to fellowship together. And yet, Father, help us to understand the urgency of our day. Father, I look around our world and it seems chaos. And yet then I look at our church and I see chaos. Father, help us not to be legalistic, not to be pharisaical, but Father, help us to understand that we have been saved by grace through faith and that, Father, you, the power of your spirit, the authority of your word, the supernatural teachers involved in our lives are conforming each and every one of us into the image of Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We praise you. In Christ's name, amen.